This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, folks, I think we're going to do this, smaller group and all. It's good to have you back. We're going to do two more sessions. Then all the seminars are done, including this one. Um, They will post my slides to their website within the week, it sounds like. So if you don't get a slide, you don't have to worry too much about it. They'll all be up and you can go back, save you doing a little bit of digging yourself. So why don't we ask the Lord's blessing on our segment. We'll go for about 75% of it in dialogue or in presentation, and then we'll break for some time to ask some questions and make some observations. So welcome, come on in. We'll see, we'll see how many of us ate too much for lunch and how well I can help keep you attentive. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, very much for the blessings of Christian organization. Uh, the time, the money, the energy that's gone into this uh, weekend event. Please bless us now as we do a little more thinking about how to structure our homes, our churches, and our larger Christian organizations. We want to serve you with wisdom and grace, so help us now to have that balance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so on the way out of the last seminar, we got talking about rightly dividing the word of truth. Balance is a big deal. And if you're not balanced, then eventually you'll lose some of the respectability that you could have if people understood that you were fair-minded and not an ideologue. Uh, What's happened is, is that we find ourselves dividing into camps where we have a priori value systems. You know, a priori, Latin phrase that means determined beforehand. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a predetermined set of values. But when you hold them so dearly that you immediately discount anyone else, especially when you're talking with other fellow Adventist brothers and sisters, you might be in a dangerous position. So I want to encourage you to come to the table with a measure of objectivity as, as we look there at Edwin Freeman, responsible and honest. Now, the objective truth versus the postmodernism, we've talked about that a little bit already. It's very important that we understand, though, where a lot of people are coming from. And what's happening is the spirit of the world is finding its way into the spirit of the church. And this is a problem. So I'm, in this segment, I'm going to address a little bit the dynamics of authority again. I know if you were at my presentation on Sabbath morning, I did dress it, but it was truncated. And I'm going to tackle it from a slightly different perspective here. Um, I had a little bit of feedback from one of you that someone felt like the presentation might lend itself to those that were abusers of authority to feel empowered to abuse authority. If you have come out of a setting where authority has been abused, then that lens is going to skew the way you look at a lot of things. But when you lose structure in a society, you lose civility. When you lose it in a home, you lose the componentry for character building. And when you lose it in a church, it's especially dangerous because the church is to be a lighthouse that balances out truth, and grace. So Ellen White says it's hardly possible for men to offer a greater insult to God than to despise and reject the instrumentalities that he's appointed to lead them. Now, I want you to focus in on the word despise. Despise has to do with the emotive side of your life, how you feel. 
Rejection is an action. These are two things that you'll be tempted to feel based on how people are exercising their authority. But it's important for you to understand that God sends people into your life partially for the refinement process of your own being. Now, as a Christian leader, I want to give you a new idea. I once had a person come to this, one of the schools that I was overseeing as a pastor. A church school is a ministry of a church. And I'm convinced after that person's tenure that God sent that person to us for us to help them almost as much as they helped us. And I'd like for us to have that view, that Christian compassion towards the people that find you find yourself interacting with. It's not an accident. God is the architect of every day. He's the architect of all the people that are coming into your life. And some of them are there for you to help, and some of them are there to help you. And it's no different with your church. We need a lot of patience with, with each other. But when it comes to structures of authority, whether it's a dad or a mom or a pastor or a teacher. Now, I don't know how this was. This will be somewhat dependent on your age But one of the things I didn't tell you about my mother on Sabbath morning is that not only did she come out of a home where there was abuse, physical abuse, intimidation, verbal abuse, the story I told then was about my grandpa getting drunk and chasing him around the house with a butcher knife and them hiding in the the bathroom, Three, three little girls and their mommy, my grandma. I mean, that is truly abuse. My mother managed to come out of that and actually make some really healthy choices. And in spite of her father's abusive authority, my mother understood that there was still a great need for structure in my life. And one of the things my mom said to me, which was said to a lot of kids a generation ago, was, if you get in trouble at school, you're going to be in trouble at home. Now, my mom was making a statement to me. In effect, what she was saying is, their authority is in partnership with me. Now, there were times when my mom had to go talk to the teachers, and with my own kids uh, as a senior pastor while they were young in their developmental stages, I made it a point not to go deliver them from their, their problems. I needed to teach them how to work with authority, and when they got into trouble, typically I encouraged them that they had to work it out, if not, if not them, then my wife. And the reason I did that was, was that I didn't want any teacher that I was dealing with to feel that somehow I was blurring the line between my pastoral role and my parental role. But I taught my kids in a similar manner that those teachers are my partners. Now, if you're in a church or a church school setting and you're a board member, you need to understand that one of the most vulnerable positions in the Seventh-day Adventist faith community when it comes to hiring and firing are teachers. Teachers are on the chopping block a little bit easier than pastors are. And sometimes the pastors they're dealing with are not particularly balanced and not particularly wise. So one of the things our society is doing right now is it's tearing down everything that's institutional. And when you tear down the institutions, you may feel a momentary sense of freedom, but what we have forgotten is that those institutions were erected at great price and sacrifice with a great sense of community. And when they're gone, uh, we're going to find ourselves bearing, sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. So in today's society, especially when we start talking about things education, we hold everybody responsible except the, well, them and their parents. 
And in society, we're down on policemen. We're down on teachers. We're down on preachers. We're down on anybody that used to hold any measure of positional authority. Now, in the Adventist church right now, you're going to have a very negative dynamic whenever the word positional authority is used. Positional authority is almost a dirty word when it comes to the dialogues of leadership. But the the truth is, is that there is a measure of positional authority that's very important for the safeguarding of the institution and the people in it. So when I started on Sabbath morning, I asked this question, how well do you relate to accountability? And if nobody can hold you accountable, you're in a, diff- you're in a very dangerous position. Positional authority, accountability, they're all a safeguard. Now, since I'm talking about authority and accountability, I'm going to talk in the marriage venue for just a moment. When we were young newlyweds some 30 years ago, my wife and I had an agreement, and the agreement was we wouldn't spend more than $50 without checking with each other. We didn't have any money. And as time went by, we got just a little bit more. I tell people, my wife came from a very structured home, faithful tithe payers, very disciplined. When we got married, my wife had never been so poor, but I had never been so rich. I was in a situation where my financial path was, was growing, even though we had, we were like church mice with not very much. So we had an agreement. No spending of sizable amounts without checking, and $50 was what our initial sizable amount was. Well, the problem was, was that I like to shop and purchase things for security. I tell people, uh, if I find something on a clearance rack at 75% off that's a consumable, I may buy every one of them. So I tease that, you know, if I found a thousand rolls of toilet paper at a great price, I'd buy them and bring them home and find a place to keep them. My wife, however, is a saver. So the problem was, was that when the internet came of age and I could get on the internet and look for stuff, she figured out that I started, the more I started looking, the more likely I was to start hitting the buttons and start buying. And with three boys, you know, they had an interest in motorcycles and four-wheelers and Jeeps and this kind of stuff. So I started looking. And every once in a while, she would do something that just really irritated me. Now, I told you in the last seminar that uh, I have a Lamborghini. My family is, uh, my wife especially, is uh, my best friend. We're very connected emotionally and relationally because we've solved a lot of heavy-duty problems. But in the beginning, it wasn't as much so. So when I was on the Internet looking, because then I'd move on to trucks. I wanted a truck. And my wife would walk up behind me and look over my shoulder. Oh, that infuriated me. She was, she was coming into an arena, a place where I really didn't want her noticing what I was doing. I wish every story I could tell was as... Uh, as light and trivial as something like that. But unfortunately, in 30 years of ministry, I have stories where men have secret places on their iPad where their wives aren't allowed to look. And they'll go into a room and shut the door and and lock it. And the wife is not privileged to know what it was they were looking at on that iPad. When you cut off the cycles of accountability in your life in a marriage situation like that, You are walking down a dark and dangerous road and the devil is walking with you and it's not the light you're walking in. In those situations, what's really lost for the woman is respect. 
And by the way, most of those marriages, most marriages are built on the two pillars of trust and respect. If you want to have trust and respect, you have to have accountability, which means that people have the right to check in and see what it is you're doing. God puts people in our path. Let's not reject and resent those that step in to tell us we're doing something wrong. There are those who have too little courage to reprove wrong or who through indolence or lack of interest make no earnest effort to purify the family or the church. They're accountable for the evil that may result from their neglect of duty. We are just as responsible for the evils we might have checked in others by exercising parental or pastoral authority as if it had been our own. We looked at that before. Now, you need to understand in the leadership milieu you're in that you are living in an age of assurance, not an age of accountability. And this is a really big starting point. This is a huge paradigm or frame. Everybody that you're dealing with now has been treated as if they were a customer. Now, if you notice the original title on the seminar series, it was about maintaining credibility in an age of consumer religion. I'm actually engaged in an ongoing study in regards to religion as a commodity that's being sold. But what we've seen happen over the last 20 or 30 years with the church growth movement is we have seen religion turned into merchandise and good feelings traded for the place of healthy and righteous behavior. And so very few postmodern churches, especially the big mega churches, are willing to hold people accountable because you can't hold a customer very accountable. A customer is king. Now, if your church operates on the customer mentality, you're in big trouble. Churches are not businesses. Churches are families. Families do not work on the customer basis. My children don't get to vote on whether or not they want me to stay their dad or their mother. I have responsibilities to them and they have responsibilities to me. But you need to understand that our culture has gone through several phases of, uh, of consumerism. Back in the day when Henry Ford was producing Model T's, he told the public, you could have any color of Model T you want as long as it's black. You know why? Because there was a shortage of goods. Then we come up to World War II and we see the ramping up of production And we come out of World War II with the accessibility to produce, and now we're convincing people to buy things that they don't really need. And now we come to the age of automation and and access to marketing through the Internet and your devices, and we're um, we're at the penultimate peak. We're at the zenith of consumerism, and if you don't like what you hear at one church, you can go to another church, and that's particularly dangerous in a place like where I pastor, because in my county, Bering County, where I'm the senior pastor of one of the churches, there's over 7,000 Seventh-day Adventists, which means that it's as big in the county I'm pastoring almost as probably two, two of the conferences in our whole union. The conference I came from in Indiana only has a few hundred more Seventh-day Adventists in the entire conference. But if you don't like what's being said at one church, you can run to another church, which is extremely dysfunctional. We're living in an age where you're supposed to make me feel good, not make me feel bad. But you need to know there's two types of assurance. There's the immediate assurance that you feel good when you're doing something you know you shouldn't. 
And there's the ultimate assurance that comes when somebody tells you you're making a mistake. You need to change course. So you get to be a part of creating the culture of the milieu of the churches that you're in and the conferences that you're in. But if you're trying to sell what you've got, whether it's to the young people, to your own kids, or to the community, you're making a huge mistake. Christianity and our churches are built on the platform of Christian love, which is a higher plane of service than the idea that I'm selling you a program. Now, when a person's not converted, there are certain things that we do market to the community. We may market a Breathe Free program or a Dave Ramsey program or something like that. It's fine to market that to a community, but when you cross over on the line to your own spiritual identity, your group spiritual identity, now I'm talking about your worship services. When you cross over in your worship service and you now try to turn your worship service into a way to draw people in as customers, it's no longer a family worship event, you now start to morph the key identity of who you are in Christ and you start grabbing secular mentalities that suit the desires of the unconverted masses. There is a dividing line that divides what you can and should do by way of marketing. I'm telling you this partially because when the church growth growth mentalities came into the ascendancy, along came a man named George Barna. He wrote a book called Marketing the Church. And I'll tell you, in the beginning days of the church growth movement, there was a lot of resistance to what they were doing. And I need to tell you now, as I'm, I'm... As I said in an ongoing uh, study program, I just read the other day out of a book called The Forgotten Way how many of the Fuller uh, Church Growth Institute, along with the author of the book, The Forgotten Way, consider the church growth experiment largely a failed experiment. It's done very little to impact the cultural integrity and the righteousness of our nation, and yet we see these megachurch popping up all over the place, and the temptation for you in your little podunk Adventist church or your medium-sized Adventist church or even your big Adventist churches to think you need to go get your cues from them. My wife was just on the phone with one of her good friends from years ago. One of her children has left the Adventist church, and she, they were talking about the church she was attending, and one of the I guess it was a neat thing. I wasn't on the phone. But one of the, one of the marks of success is that when you can offer a Disneyland-like experience for the kids, a coffee shop for the parents, a place to buy books when you leave church right afterwards, you're starting to hit the mark. Friends, we're Seventh-day Adventists. We're still working on the family motif. We don't take our cues from those that are working in an age of customer orientation. Sometimes what you have to do is to create accountability, not assurance. If you fail to create the accountability and give assurance when you shouldn't, you could be responsible for the ruination of a relationship or more than that, the experience that a person has with God, salvation. Now, in Acts 20, verse 26, I won't look it up. I don't have a Bible right here with me. But Paul comes to a place where he says, look, I've told you the whole truth and your blood's no longer on my hands. It goes back to a reference from Ezekiel. I believe chapter 34, somewhere in that neighborhood. God has a completely different frame for looking at the body of believers. That kind of accountability on a minister ought to give us a special sense of respect for the difficult emotional role that they fulfill in doing what God says. This quote here is an interesting one. It says, to exalt a minister 
as to exalt a minister as perfection because he has not displeased anyone by reproving their errors not only brings a snare upon the minister, but it brings disaster upon the people. He who does not hurt the spiritual self-complacency of the people is almost deified by them. While a devoted, faithful servant of God who lays bare the errors of the church members is supposed to be defective because he does not see what they suppose are their personal merits. He reproves wrongs which really exist, and this is counted in indignity, and his authority and instruction are cast aside and trodden underfoot. These extremes in the way the people look upon ministers are found among the professed children of God, and who will now examine their hearts and tenderly, earnestly, and faithfully set things in order? Now, mind you, I know there are some pastors out there whose social EQ is pretty low. There are some, just like there are some teachers and just like there are some parents, okay? I've dealt with a lot of people through the years. But when a pastor actually does, in a timely manner, in a tasteful way, as far as it's tasteful, it's not a very tasteful experience for a pastor, does confront some of the issues that are wounding the health and vitality of a church, it's not the church member's job to come in behind and lick the wounds of the wounded members. And also, I want to suggest to you, the Bible says the wounds of a friend can be trusted and an enemy multiplies kisses. It doesn't say the wounds of a pastor can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If you're the person closest connected to the issue of of challenge, you shouldn't send the pastor to go do what you have a relational prerogative and responsibility to do. This is real leadership. And so if (laughs) I, I can remember a lady... I, was, I walked out of my office in Indiana. I got in my car at about that time. A lady pedaled up to my, uh, on a bicycle up to my car. I rolled the window down, and she wanted to talk. She was troubled. She said to me, Pastor, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. So I'm sitting in the car. She's got her bike there. She's talking to me. She says, there's a real problem going on here. And then she went on to describe somebody over at one of the industries associated, or at least formally associated with the academy, who was having an affair with someone else. And I said to her, have you talked to them? Now, does this seem like an unreasonable thing for a pastor to say? And her response I'm going to share with you is illustrative of what appears to be true graciousness, but is actually one of the worst forms of cowardice that you're going to hear. She said, well, how could I say anything to them? I have my own problems. Well, now, if we work on that logic, there will never be anybody that ever rebukes anybody. Now, if she herself was in the midst of an affair, she would certainly be the wrong person to go talk to this person. But I challenged her. And it's another one of those moments when, when people, their easy way out is to say, well, that wouldn't do any good. And I'm just going to remind you, you need to have a quick response for that. And your response needs to be akin to this. How would you know until you do it? And by the way, just so you know, just because nothing changes in your initial dialogue doesn't mean that God doesn't take your words and roll them around in that person's mind for many days to come. You know, the Bible, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy says of Saul of Tarsus, in effect, that he couldn't really sleep very well at night because he heard Stephen's words. You know, he held the coats as they were stoning him. He could still hear Stephen's words in his mind night by night as he went to bed. God was working on him. So 
let's not make the mistake of saving up all the hard relational elements is for the pastor to handle. If you're the one connected closely to the individual, you should be the one that goes. If you have the relationship, you should be the one to strain it. If they trust you, you should be the one that delivers the wounds. Don't save it all up for the pastor. It's not a very good experience. Now, when it comes to the dynamics of a bad relationship between a pastor and a church, she has this to say, where alienation exists between a minister and the people, there's something decidedly wrong either in him or in the church members. Now, this is going to take some pretty honest and responsible thinking here. And something should be done immediately to work out a reform in whomever may be the erring party. Has he dropped a word or done a deed which has wounded you in some way? And does he not know that it has hurt you? That's very possible. Then go to him. Tell him his fault between him and you alone. And have the coldness and the bitterness of spirit that has been created by an unwitting act on his part changed to respect and love. You cannot afford to allow any unchristlike spirit to embitter your spirit against your brethren. Now, if there was a sentiment behind all three of these seminars that I'm after, it's that last two and an eighth or quarter of a line. You cannot afford to allow any unchristlike spirit to embitter your spirit against your brethren. Period. Doesn't matter who they are. They could be a leader. They could be somebody that won't follow your leadership. But you can't be in a position where you're ruined by somebody else's actions. And our Christian kindness, in this case combined with candor, is how something can go from being bitterness to respect and love. But you have to be honest with yourself. And you've got to be able to see yourself. We cannot receive the blessings that the love and presence of Christ can bring us if we cherish feelings that will mar the unity that Christ prayed might exist among his disciples. Now, we know Jesus said the sun rises on the good and the bad and it rains on the good and the bad. But there are special covenantal blessings that God wants to give you when you don't depart to the left or the right. And one of those blessings God wants to pour on you, on your leadership and on your church is a special sense of fruitfulness and fragrance that comes by guarding the condition of your heart. And if you get enough people who guard the condition of their heart, you get a collective sweetness. So God is looking to give us certain blessings, but when we hang on to resentment, when we cherish feelings that mar the unity, and I want to come back to my earlier statement, you cannot not tell your story. So you are going to tell your story. It's going to squeeze out. If you've got a real problem with leadership, If you don't like the people that are leading your church or leading your conference, if you really don't like your wife or your husband, hey, you just give yourself the right situation and you'll talk about it. It's impossible for you not to do it. And so it's important that you guard the garden of your heart. And when that garden is guarded well and you allow Jesus to show you, hey, that's a weed. How about if we pull it? If you do, you save yourself from the noxious elements of its presence. God designs that his people shall be a unit that they shall see eye to eye and be of the same mind and of the same judgment. This cannot be accomplished without a clear, pointed, living testimony in the church. So, let me say this to you. If you bring your friends to church expecting that nothing will be said that potentially offends them, especially if they're coming out of the world, if you bring your friends to church and you don't expect that something's going to happen in that service where the Holy Spirit's going to convict them, I want to know why you brought them. If you bring your friends to church and you're not praying about them coming, 
Uh, hopefully your pastor is thoughtful about how he says things, but he cannot be so thoughtful that he does not give a clear testimony about right and wrong. If you bring somebody to church and they're moving towards the cross, they probably will receive the message with gladness. If you bring somebody to church and the cross is really not what they're about, even though they take the name of Christian, when the preacher amplifies the voice of the Holy Spirit, it will probably rankle the soul. This is why our churches are not to be sold. Paul said, I'm not peddling the gospel. The church experience, what happens in the spiritual arena of the church is not for sale. It is not to be marketed. It is an identity experience for the group, and it's about connecting with the Father. It's not your evangelistic series. Now, this sounds very out of step with a lot of what you'll hear in Protestantism, sometimes even in Adventism. But your church service is a place where souls are to be one. But you need to remember there's a battle going on behind the scenes that's not about flesh and blood. It's about principalities and powers. And so in those church services, the men and women of God that are breaking the bread of life need to be in a position to be supported by all the foot soldiers that are a part of the army that's gathered in that community But a clear-pointed living testimony is how we end up with the same mind and we have unity. Now, I want to come back again to the writings of Ellen White. What is largely separating us as we go forward is an absence of familiarity with what she's written. She takes the... She is the lead goose honking out cadence. She says the things that are the hardest to say. God bless her, she's resting in the grave. If you're reading them directly from her and you accept the inspiration of the gift, it doesn't have to sound so tough when you hear it from a parent or a pastor or a teacher. But if you're not reading them and if your friends aren't reading them, they might be mad at you when maybe they need to wrestle it out with God. And by the way, you need to be be very comfortable with the fact when someone's upset that as long as you weren't crass or careless about how you said it, if you came at it with a noble and dignified approach with a respectful approach and somebody's upset about it you need to pray about it but you need to be okay we're kind of back to edwin friedman's what kind of well differentiated dynamics are in your life can you endure the emotional duress of not being appreciated all right now this is an interesting text it's paul writing one of his two pastoral letters three actually if you count first second timothy and he says basically Rebuke, exhort, and teach with all authority. Let no one despise you. The question is, do we really want those kinds of people breaking the word? Now, there is a difference between the pastoral role and the administrative role in our conference. The pastoral role is a role that has a buffer between it and the election process. While our conference officers get elected for a period of time, and we can say they borrow their ecclesiastical authority partially from the body, also from God, our administrators don't lose their prophetic voice, but they may lose their position if they follow that prophetic voice all the way out, because it might be that the people say, we don't like that, We, we don't agree with it. Now, our system is set up so wonderfully that if I get up and preach at the village church and some important person who gives a lot of money doesn't like it, as long as the people above me in the conference office are men 
of God. They can get on the phone and complain about me, but it won't do them a whole lot of good to go find six or ten or other people as board of trustees members and say, you know, I think we need to cancel the guy's contract. It's time for us to rescind the Christmas bonus, whatever it might be. This kind of authority is the kind of authority that Pastor Paul actually exercised. We all need greater Christian courage, Ellen White would write, that we may uplift the standard on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We are to make no compromise with the leaders of rebellion. We must have a firm determination to do the Lord's will at all times and all places. There will ever be a spirit to rise up against reproof. There will ever be a spirit to rise up against the reproof of sins and wrongs. But the voice of reproof should not be hushed because of this. Those whom God has set apart as ministers of righteousness have a solemn responsibility laid upon them to reprove the sins of the people. Paul commanded Titus, speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, she doesn't quote the rest of the verse, which goes on to say, let no man despise you. Well, now that's not totally in your control. But part of the way you keep it in your control is that you go about these things in such a way that the person knows it's not personal. It's actually on behalf of their own salvation and because Jesus has prompted you. There's the rest of it. There are ever those who will despise the one who dares to reprove sin. But when required, reproof must be given. Paul directs Titus to rebuke a certain class sharply. That's the Cretans. It's not a very pleasant segment of the Bible. He says that they're, they're liars and they're gluttons and even their own prophet says such is true. It certainly is, is not politically correct for the day in which we're living. And yet, Paul was not afraid to speak it because he felt it was true. So rebuking a certain class sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And how shall the reproof be given? This is where I love the balance of Ellen White. Let the apostle answer with all longsuffering and doctrine. The one at fault must be shown that his course is not in harmony with the word of God. But never should the wrongs of God's people be passed by indifferently. Those who faithfully discharge their unpleasant duties under a sense of their accountability to God will receive his blessing. And I remind you of what the scriptures say. When a man's way pleases the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. The hard part is the time between when they appreciate you and the time where they don't. And now we're back to Friedman's statement that it's the emotional endurance of a leader that's really the key to his success or her success. Now, I don't want anybody to go out of this session and think that what the pastor is suggesting is that we should all run out and start this wave of rebuke and reproof. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm actually saying is, is that we've come into a climate in a milieu where very little of it takes place. And when it does take place, the rebuker or the reprover is often seen as a victimizer or an abuser. This is in the air we believe, we breathe. But it's not proper. Those failing to reprove are not to be exalted. To exalt a minister is perfection. We went over this one already. He has, because he's not displeased anyone by reproving their sins, is a snare to the minister. Let's keep going. Writing about Jesus, Ellen White says, the scriptures say the same thing. He spoke as one having authority. The rabbi spoke with doubt and hesitancy as if Scripture might be interpreted to mean one thing or exactly the opposite. But Jesus taught Scripture as of unquestionable authority, and whatever subject, it was presented with power. Now, I have preached 
these three messages at my church on the first three Sabbaths of December. And preaching's a little different than a seminar. And I elected at the end of every one, I preached two times on a Sabbath, 8.30 and 11.20. I've elected on every one of those Sabbaths that I'm not going to stand at the back and shake people's hands. And I'm going to tell you why. Because while there's merit for me to know who's at church and not at church, and there's often encouragement for me, I knew that some of the things I was saying were not going to be received well by a portion of my congregation And I felt like I would do them a service to let them go out thinking about it, even though they're agitated, as opposed to having to look me in the eye and think of something nice to say to me. Now, when I spoke on Sabbath morning, talking about authority, coming at it from a different angle, when I got all done, I stepped off the stage, I went down in the back, I appreciated the fact that uh, one of the physicians in the crowd came up to me and gave me some encouragement. Later on in talking with my wife, she asked me two questions. She said, did anybody get mad? Well, I don't know. She said, was anybody converted? Well, I don't know. It's a little game we play. Because those are the exact questions that John Wesley would ask his young ministers. And if the answer was no to both questions, he would say, well, then you need to go back out and start over. You see, it's impossible in the great controversy for the truth to be preached and it never rankled the soul of anybody who's listening. If it doesn't rankle somebody's soul, then probably nothing was said of substance to say, hey, touche, Satan, I'm in the battle. I've just drawn the sword and I'm going to use it carefully and wisely. I'm not a butcher. I'm a skilled surgeon by God's grace and the Spirit's presence. But I'm here, to do, I'm here to do business in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a tea that we're having. It's a tussle. It's called the great controversy. Now, I don't go out to make people upset. It's probably kind of good, actually, that one of you came up to me after one of these sessions and said that some of your friends didn't like some of the things I said. <laughs> you know what? I'm okay with it. I didn't ask for the appointment. I didn't ask for this one. Which means in the end, I have to come humble enough to do what, do what I was asked to do and the best I can do it. And in the end, if my humanity messed it up, I'll tell you I'm sorry. But if it wasn't my humanity that messed it up and it's not really about me, in the end, all I have to say to you is, hey, it's between you and God. The Holy Spirit can apply it however He wants. That's a skill for a leader. It's very important to know it. Jesus spoke with authority. All of the major movements that have advanced the kingdom of God have known a major amount of conflict. Martin Luther would say, and you can read it in the Great Controversy, nobody has been more hated in a thousand years than me. And it was true. Of course, few people had been as loved as he was as well. All right, you excuse yourself. Let's go to parenting for a minute. This is where we really learn our first lessons. But Brother B, have you done this? Have you really confronted? You excuse yourself by saying that your children are now beyond your control, too old for you to command. In this you mistake. None of your children are too old to respect your authority and obey your commands while they still have what, friends? Read it. Shelter under your roof. Now, I'm here to tell you, my mother, even though she made no profession of Christianity, knew this was common sense. 
And I've already told you, I have three boys and one girl. And when the boys didn't like what I was saying, they'd all rush to each other's defense. And it was three against one. Not very fair. But while they're under your roof, you have a different kind of responsibility. But even after they're not under your roof, you are not exempt from exercising parental influence. She makes this very clear. How old were Eli's sons? They were married men. And Eli, as a father and a priest of God, was required to restrain them. Well, you could say that's because they were employed, as it were, as priests. And yes, that's true. Who's going to argue with you about that? But that's not, the, that's not the way she's connecting the dots. Because Eli did not restrain them. And he should have, not only because it was a family business, if you want to call the priesthood that, he should have done it because he was the one that nurtured them and brought them to the maturity of their adulthood, or at least attempted to. And it was his job to exercise the bonds that were woven between him and his boys. He didn't do it. It appears that the boys and maybe Eli himself are eternally lost. The failure to do this is a great mistake. Now, I have uh, these wonderful children, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that discipling them through adolescence is probably one of the hardest tasks I've ever had. But I mentioned in the last seminar that my children respect me. Now, I'm going to tell you why they respect me. Not all the reasons, just enough. They respect me because I'm consistent. They don't like my consistency all the time. But they know I'm consistent. They respect me because I'm fair. They respect me because I show respect to their mother and kindness and courtesy. They respect me because I'm not two different people. Somebody up on the platform and somebody at the dinner table. I'm the same person. Now having said all that, there are plenty of times my kids have not liked me. And to be very honest, there's been someone I haven't liked them. And if you've been a parent of an adolescent, you know this is true. But at the end of the day, even after my children get tired of what I have to say, and I'm trying to be careful, one's 28 and married, one's 26, one's 22, and I have one that's 19. She still fits this under my roof dynamic. I try to respect them, but I have to remind them every once in a while that our station in life is not the same. I am always going to be their father. It doesn't put me above saying I'm sorry, which is another reason they respect me, because I do. But along the road, it has been my well-differentiated position as parent that has allowed them to make many of their choices that have been good and successful. I don't take credit for everything they've done. They're their own people. But I am happy that even though they may not all be where I would like for them to be on the spiritual spectrum, that there is still a potential for me to lead them because I have not given them a reason to disrespect me. Now, I'm in it for the long term. And you know what? It might be that in your church, you've got a problem that developed over a period of generations and you're not going to fix it overnight. You have to be in it for the long term. Some people may have to move away. Some people may have to die. New people may have to come in to where the culture of your church changes. But you need to conduct yourself in such a way that when you are required to do something, you do it nicely, but you do it. And then you hang on 
waiting for God to step in and take care of the parts you can't take care of. Men and women who with their different organizations are brought together into the church capacity have peculiarities and faults. As these are developed, they will require reproof. If those who are placed in important positions never reproved, never rebuked, there would soon be a demoralizing condition of things that would greatly dishonor God. That's what we don't want. But how shall the reproof be given? There it is with the long-suffering and doctrine. Principles should be brought to bear upon the one who needs reproof, but never should the wrongs of God's people be passed by. And then we're going to skip over this. This is a very powerful sentiment. All this unsanctified sympathy. Now, I'm going to back up just a little bit here. I'm going to read this. There will be many women who despise reproof, whose feelings will almost always rise up. It is not pleasant to be told our wrongs. In almost every case where reproof is necessary, there will be some who entirely overlook the fact that the Spirit of the Lord has been grieved and His cause reproached. These will pity those who deserved reproof because personal feelings have been hurt. I hope I'm not talking to anybody that has this problem. You rush in behind the pastor or the parent or the teacher and you sympathize with the person who needed reproof. And by the way, Ellen White will enunciate what Paul enunciates, that some people need severe rebuke. But when you rush in because you think the pastor or the parent didn't do it the right way, and you offer sympathy, you undo the rebuke, and you you make the person who was rebuked feel like they were abused. All this unsanctified sympathy places the sympathizers where they are sharers in the guilt of the reproved one. In nine cases out of ten, if the one reproved had been left under a sense of his wrongs, he might have been helped to see them and thereby have been reformed. But meddlesome, unsanctified sympathizers place altogether a wrong construction upon the motives of the reprover and the nature of the reproof given, and by sympathizing with the one reproved, lead him to feel that he's been really abused and his feelings rise up in rebellion against the one who has done his duty. Let me ask you, in this case, is the one who is reproved better off or worse when it's all said and done? Infinitely worse. All right. We are close. How much time do we have, Kevin? Are we done? Seven minutes. All right, I'm going to go a little farther. I may not take as many questions in this session. Those who faithfully discharge their unpleasant duties under a sense of their accountability to God will receive His blessing. God requires His servants to always be in earnest to do His will. In the apostles' charge to Timothy, He exhorts them to preach the Word, be instant in season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Let's go a little bit farther. This one here is pretty painful. It will be necessary to reprove and exhort, and some will need to be rebuked sharply as the case demands. We hear the plea, Oh, I am so sensitive, I cannot bear the least reflection. If these persons would state the case correctly, they would say, I'm so self-willed, so self-sufficient, so proud-spirited that I will not be dictated to. And when I will not be reproved, I claim the right of individual judgment. I have a right to believe and talk as I please. But the Lord, would not, the Lord would not have us yield up our individuality. But what man is a proper judge of how far this matter of individual independence should be carried? 
All right, I'm about done here. Let's end on this. Parents who administer to their children after the example of Abraham by the combined influence of authority and affection will find favor with God. All right, so I want to make sure there's balance here. If you know somebody who's legitimately being abused verbally or physically or in another way, I am in no way, shape, or form suggesting that authority is okay no matter how it's exercised. What I am saying is is that in an age in which independent spirit is what's in the ascendancy, it's important for us to make sure the spirit of the world is not driving our choices and that we have the sanctified reason of kingly power. All right, so we'll take a few minutes for comment or question, and then we'll consider this session closed. Does anybody want to make an observation or ask a question? All right. Oh, right here. We'll take one. I, uh, I took the challenge last year of reading through the Spirit of Prophecy in the, uh, what is it, the Comfort of the Ages series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sequentially. I have studied it separately, but sequentially. One of the things that struck me was that the sons of Jacob were of age 45 and older and were still subject to his authority. In this age, I've heard so often for young people, I cannot wait until I'm 18, because at 18, my parents can only suggest. They cannot tell me what to do. Would you have any words of wisdom if there are any parents here uh, who, or young people who have heard this wrong theology who is so infiltrated into our churches today? Yeah, a uh, couple things I'd say. Number one, our culture is actively at war to separate the parents from the children. Uh, my wife is a teacher. She has to take FERPA training. That's like HIPAA training for a medical person. And what it means is, is that she cannot do certain things with information about a child. Now, what was a big surprise to me 10 years ago when I delivered one of my kids to Southern, my kids had gone to both Southern and Andrews, was that uh, they had to sign a piece of paper for me to know what their grades were. Didn't matter that I was sending thousands of dollars down there. Well, I solved this problem with my children very early on, kind of like my mother solved it with me. And it's something that you need to solve it when your kids are little, because solving it when they're big is hard, because societies tell them they can do what they want. And that is that uh, I, I'm, I tell my kids they do have choices. And so if 18, you want to declare your independence and move out and pay for your own car insurance, your own car, your own phone... Uh, your own health insurance, your own schooling and all that, you can do that. That's how you get the full right of decision-making spectrum. But until then, you are to honor me. And that's far more than obeying me. Now, the, I, once, I have a cartoon in one of my stacks at home. I hate to say that, but I have plenty of stacks. And it's a picture of a girl standing outside of a movie theater. And on the movie theater, it tells you that the movie is rated R. Now, I'm going to give you the backdrop to the cartoon. The backdrop to the cartoon is the milieu in which there were legal battles being waged over whether or not a parent had a right to know if their child was getting an abortion. And here's the caption. Child at the ticket counter to go in to see an R-rated movie. And the the person behind the counter, you know, has the big nose and the big eyes, and you got the little blurp, and it says, are you kidding? I can't sell you a ticket to this movie. What do you think it is, an abortion clinic? Now, this is the environment we're, we're in. And so, 
a child at 18 can take all the prerogatives for decision-making. The question is, does the parent actually have and have they established a well-differentiated relationship with the child where they say, okay, sure, you have that right, but you need to understand what my prerogatives are. What the child will do to you is they'll tell you you're manipulating and threatening them. That's what the child would say. Ask me how I know. (laughs) What I say to them is, no, I'm not. It's just a fact you get to decide. Now, when they get over being mad, and especially when they get into a scary, stressful situation, wreck the car, need money to go to school, what do they do? The first thing they do is get out and hit the speed dial, and they call, usually, dad. My kids are wonderful. They've challenged me all along the way. It's kind of good, in a sense, because I want them to have some internal fortitude and confidence. Along the way, though, the spirit of the age, is thir- it's around them everywhere they go. It's actually even sometimes promoted in the wrong ways inside certain circles and dialogues inside the church. So, really, at the end of the day, please take this challenge. What do you really think love is, and how does objective truth fit into that definition? That's where the dividing line is in all this stuff. All right, thank you for your attention. We're going to take a 15-minute break. And if anybody wants to visit privately in between, that'll be great. I'll be here. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.